Brooklyn, uh, when, my, when my family arrived, it was it was a it was a hub for recently arrived immigrants. Unlike now, where it's a hub for recently arrived hipsters. But, yeah. <laughs> but... Welcome to Deep Thoughts, Science and Social Justice, Episode 7. Happy New Year. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. The goal of these interviews is to have candid, first-person conversations about the role of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in politics, the sciences, and beyond. As you listen to these undocumented experiences, I hope we demonstrate the value of diversity and recognize the inequities that exist in the daily lives of minorities in this country. On this episode, we'll be talking to Kyle Marianne Viterbo. She's an engaging producer at Science Friday and is working to increase opportunities for meaningful connections between Science Friday's mission and the diverse audience they serve. As a former physical anthropologist turned science communicator, Kyle loves sharing hilarious stories about human evolution, hidden museum collections, and the many ways Indiana Jones is a terrible archaeologist. Before joining the Sci-Fi team, Kyle worked with Guerrilla Science to bring science experiences to unexpected places. She also started the Symposium Academic Stand-Up, a show and workshop series that uses sharp, socially-minded comedy that challenge academic norms and champion inclusive science communication. While gaining her Master of Science Communication and Public Engagement from the University of Edinburgh, she fell in love with stand-up comedy and has been using it ever since to understand how moments of laughter can connect all of us. This will be a great episode. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Uh, (laughs) I just realized anytime I listen to somebody give my sort of pre-written bio, I always think it's, oh, that's too long. (laughs) (laughs) like it takes sitting and listening to like how you've written it and having someone say it out loud for you to like be like yeah i should cut that down you know i feel like if someone wants to read it out there and put your story out there i say whatever because like hey i i'm out here plugging for you so might as well but you know i told i totally feel that my intro was kind of was kind of long too i i feel like i should cut it down as well but you know it is, it, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is what it is. So you know, I, I, I want uh, before we sort of get into like, um, you know, some of the stories you told or reclaiming STEM and maybe expanding on that a little, because I realized like you guys only had five minutes to tell like a really tight story, but maybe there was like a lot of detail there there that you had to like compress or skip because of that really tight time frame. So on here, you know, we can use as much time as you want to tell that story in full. But before that, you know, I want to talk a little bit about you and like where you're from. Um, how'd you, how'd you, how you got into comedy and you're from New York, right? You're from Queens, I think. Yeah. So I, I was born in the Philippines and then I immigrated to the U S with my family when I was around 10 years old and we moved to Elmhurst Queens, which is, I think to this day, maybe Newark is competing against it, but like it, I think demographically, it is one of the most diverse areas of all of the U.S. Um, and that's like you know a small like neighborhood in New York City. Um, 
And so that was kind of more of my upbringing. I've lived in Queens for a very long time. And I mean, I've, I, I've, I lived away from New York a little bit when I was in grad school, um, both as a physical anthropologist and also uh, in grad school for science communication. But for the most part, I've been uh, a New Yorker for a long time. Yeah, you, you know, me too. Like, uh, so my family came here from Trinidad and Guyana in the Caribbean in the 1970s, and I was born in Brooklyn. And yeah. I lived there my entire life. Um, so I feel like we can sort of, uh, did, did you go to like New York City public school uh, yeah. growing up? Or, yeah. So I feel like we, we can share a lot of those experiences because like, I realized like, as I sort of progress in my scientific career, I'm meeting less and less people who you know, went to public school or even like grew up in New York or anything of, of that nature. So mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like we shared a lot of those experiences growing up. So like, what was it like growing up in, in Elmhurst, Queens, Queens? Like, what would you say, like, uh, what, you know, made Elmhurst really like unique and and uh, unique and special some uh, in a way that you can't get from uh, anywhere else, I guess? What was it like growing mm-hmm. up in, in Elmhurst? I think um you know, the mo- I don't know how it was for you, but like the moment where I realized it was a special upbringing for me was when I transitioned go- going from high school to college. I went to, to undergrad at New York University because my mom worked there and I managed to get in um, and it was, you know, like it was affordable because I had tuition remission. Like we wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. Oh, um, nice. And I think that was like the actually on orientation day was the moment I realized like, oh, wow, the world, like especially the U.S. is way wider than I understood it to be when I was growing up in Queens, especially because um, Elmhurst is hugely an immigrant area like Jackson Heights, Rego Park, etc. Like that whole neighborhood area in Queens. is still predominantly like immigrant families living there. Um, and so growing up, like in it, going to school in public schools in New York City, it was far more normal for me to, you know, celebrate multicultural days, hang out with people with different um, cultural backgrounds, like visit my friends' homes where they speak different languages. Like I'm Filipino, but I heard and learned and grew up hearing speaking some form of Spanish, you know, because of a lot of friends of mine who are Hispanic. And, you know, they would, that was like their first language at home. And so we would speak English in high school in at the schools, but like, you know, you go hang out with them at their homes and it's a com- completely different thing. Um, and if I remember correctly, like in my graduating class uh, in Queens, um, there was like about a thousand of us graduating from from my class in high school, and maybe less than five people might be called white. And like for the most part, they were either first generation or second generation immigrants themselves too. And so you know, it was like a very very different kind of demographic to then like shifting to. Uh, college where it's you know I mean NYU is just like a rich kids playground for the most part that's what I understood it to be um and so it was like a different completely different experience um and it really like solidified the idea that like what I was experiencing in New York City public schools was not necessarily the same experience that other people had 
um, even diaspora Filipinos had across the U.S. So, yeah, I don't know how it was for you in Brooklyn, but well, you know, I Br- Brooklyn was Brooklyn uh, when my when my family arrived, it was it was a it was a hub for recently arrived immigrants, unlike now where it's a hub for recently arrived hipsters. Yeah, but <laughs> but, but growing up, so I went to you know I went to Midwood High School in Brooklyn, and oh, my yeah. graduate. Yeah, and my my graduating class had that that total school had four thousand students from mm-hmm. freshmen to 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 seniors, and man, like I gotta say, you know, it wasn't that great. Like, mm-hmm. New, yeah, New York City public the high, high schools it was tough because like um uh, uh so so the way that I don't know how that how it works now, but you know, four thousand students. Imagine like all these students flooding the hallways during prime time uh, when everyone is is in school. It's like everyone is shoulder to shoulder trying to get to class, and yeah. and you know, we never we never really had like the best teachers or the best facilities to learn science or to learn you know technology or engineering or whatever. And the school sort of tier was broken down to like three classes where like the bottom rung of students were those who like lived nearby and they were quote and the word was zoned in where they mm-hmm. automatically got into the school and I was one of those people who just lived nearby I just automatically got in mm-hmm. and then all the other tiers were like students who actually had to apply to get in and and they um would have the better teachers and the better facilities and, and whatnot but I definitely uh, agree with you like it, it, you when you're going up in New York City you don't know what diversity is like because mm-hmm. everyone else is already from everywhere else. It's not until you you leave do you do you see that contrast. Yeah. Where yeah, where you know, now that you're spending time in college or somewhere else, you really see like that's what America really like looks like or the professional uh, workplace where it's just not people of color, it's mostly white people. And that mm-hmm. was like that's kind of like a culture shock for me as well. Yeah. Um when I when I left and went to college and and I think uh a, a lot of the really, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, really great characteristics growing up uh, in communities of color, as you say, you know, uh, uh, learning all these different languages and cultures. It's really a melting pot. And yeah, that I think it's- when I was growing up, um, I mean, you could definitely tell that different schools, you know, depending on what neighborhood you're at like that affected the level of, or the quality of education. And I don't know why, but like my high school, Newtown High School, it didn't have the best rep in my neighborhood. Like people chose, especially if you're, you know, if you're an Asian kid and your parents were pushing you a certain direction for schooling, like you would have been applying for other things. I was actually interested in applying to a school in the Far Rockaways because when I was, um, you know, when we were doing the decision making for like what high school to go to, a huge part of it was like, I was really interested in marine sciences, like, just because, you know, I grew up in the Philippines, there's a lot of, like, it's surrounded by water, you know, like the the biodiversity in the ocean out there is just like wild, it is finding Nemo. And like, and so that was like something that I was really curious about, because it was just like, yeah, why not? Why not go to a school that was like interesting in that way? But then I think I remember my counselor being like, that is really far, like you would take, you would need about two hours to get to school, and then just to come back just to to be able to access that. And so there was just a point where I was like, nah, I'm too lazy. (laughs) Like realistically, it doesn't really matter. And then I just ended up, you know, like in the neighborhood, in like the high school that was nearby. Um, And 
like Newtown High School, for some reason, we had some really decent and amazing um, STEM teachers. We didn't necessarily have like standout like programs for it, but there was plenty of AP classes. Like there were plenty of like really supportive teachers who, um, you know, encouraged you to do STEM, to do math. There was um, also a vocational program for for computer science, like one of the first ones, I think, if I remember correctly, um, for Queens, that was like very much about pushing computer sciences um, uh, as a vocation, um, not necessarily as like a STEM thing um, Hmm. in my neighborhood. So it was like, like, for me, it was very kind of serendipitous in that sense. But I also felt like because it was the same experience. Like we had what 4,000, 5,000 in a school of four floors, you know, about a thousand um, each for the different classes in high school, right? Like freshman to senior year, which is a ton. Like people outside of New York City are like, that is an insane amount of graduating students in one single class. And it's like, no, that's, you know, that's like a typical mm-hmm. block size school, high school in New York City. Um, And I think a huge part of what helped me sort of enjoy high school was that I had the opportunity to sort of like go between doing sports and doing like theater, but also doing like, uh, you know, STEM classes and like feeling like I was excelling (laughs) in one way or another um, and kind of having a taster for things without a lot of judgment because like parents and like immigrant parents for the most part only cared that like you weren't getting in trouble necessarily you know um like at least my parents were like lackadaisical in that sense it was only when like we would talk to my aunties and uncles where they would be like so nursing or doctor yes no <laughs> sure <laughs> we're like that I kind mean, of thing came up yeah <laughs> and 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 didn't realize there's so many kinds of doctors out there like yeah. when they think doctor they think uh, cpr not pcr you know what i mean right right, right. <laughs> and like even even for me, like the idea of choosing to go to college um, for a specific undergrad, like social sciences, or even um, thinking about doing like any kind of other STEM that isn't specifically branded as like being mm-hmm. a doc, like a medical doctor or being a nurse. Um, for my relatives, were just like, so is that going to pay? Like, where's the money? You know, like that was the conversation that I was having, not necessarily like, uh, you know, what is your future impact on society or whatever? It was like really, you know, will will you be able to pay your bills? <laughs> like, well, well you know, that, that, that's the immigrant mindset. You yeah. know, you come, yeah. you come to America because you want you want to make that dollar bill. Do you want to make your family? You want to make your family better? Right. And you know, it's it's all about. Uh, it's not less about your passions as a person and more about. It, does it make money? Can you support a family? We came to this country so that you can be rich and successful. And mm-hmm. these are the sort of tropey careers that are associated with rich and successful people, doctor, lawyer, or whatever, nurse or something, medical, something medical, something science. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I can't, so I can't, I can't really like uh, blame them, but I get it. Like my mom was right. the same way, like constantly pushing me to, you know, stay in school for as long as possible, go to after school, go to tutoring, go yeah. to, you know, open the book, read the book all day, every day. This is all that matters. And, you know, you'll be happy and successful. And like to 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 an extent, like fine, it was kind of helpful because I did end up now finally having a normal job and making a normal person's amount of money. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, it was it was also somewhat depriving. 
uh, and that I couldn't really explore other sort of passions that I'm interested in that I'm exploring now. But I feel like uh, that's a very co- common mindset of, 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 you know, recently arrived, arrived, arrived immigrants immigrants. in this country. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's it's a huge commonality, too, because like so many of our upbringings, especially if you're first gen or half gen or whatever, um, like the the mindset is your the economics of it right like we're we're going to be successful because the, what we're making also helps our relatives back home like i don't know what it was like for your family but like with my family it was definitely like okay well if we have a pot of money we can send money home so that our cousins could our first cousins could then go to school too and then you know it's kind of like that trickle down kind of a different kind of level of economics than than most people have, which where the American thinking is like, you know, you just do it for yourself. Once you have a family, it's all on you. And it's completely different. It's individualistic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that money that goes back home that you send back is worth a lot more when you, when your family is sending back a dollar, American dollars to, you know, your, your home country, it's worth a lot more and they can, they can live somewhat above average in in some other nation when the American dollar is so powerful. Like my grandfather uh, came to New York, he was, he was working two jobs and he had 12 kids back in Guyana Mm -hmm. and he, he was always sending his money back to, to his wife and his kids. So that so he can support them until they eventually came to the U.S. Right. But 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 that's how it goes, right? Like you, right. The, the the leader of the family comes comes to comes to America and then sends money back home. Eventually, brings their family back, and 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 that to me, this this is this is the immigrant experience. Um. So let, let's so how did you get into? Let's sort of transition here. Let's talk a little bit about um how you got into like comedy and and storytelling, uh. Uh, I feel like that's such an interesting sort of transition from anthropology into comedy. So, you know, what were the origins of that? Uh, do you feel like you're always a funny person growing up or are you one of those comedians that were like always sad and depressed and made fun of really <laughs> like, really like depressing things and, and made a joke out of things that are actually really, <laughs> really dark. So how'd you get into comedy and, and uh, you know, why is it so, why is it like an interesting medium for science communication? Um, that's so funny that you, you segued that way just because, um, generally I think there's a lot of misconceptions when it, like toxic misconceptions when it comes to the arts, like, and like the, the lone genius art sort of situation, you know, where you have to like be a depressed and like suffering, um, individual in order to make great art. And, uh, and I think it's kind of sort of, also the same in in comedy spaces where like people are more used to hearing self-deprecating kind of humor to that they think you have to be sort of a suffering person to be able to do comedy and like just like any other profession it's it's a mixed bag of anything you know Mm -hmm. um what my intro into comedy and storytelling really wasn't I, i never found myself as um as a creative person. Like I, I never saw myself as a creative person. I always saw myself as a sort of a practical kid, you know, like, I mean, my, my dad loves telling a story of how when I was little, I would dismantle every single thing that I could get my hands on. So I could put it back together, like whether it's a VCR or, you know, the electric fan and like, like he'll just see me with the thing and like, it's completely dismantled one second. And he'd be like, why did you do that? 
you know, and like and, <laughs> this thing costs money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then like just put it back together or whatever. Like that was when I was, you know, less than ten years old. But I think that's the sort of like feeling that I got when I was going into, you know, discovering myself and discovering what I liked in in grade school and high school, etc. Like even whether or not um, I was into the specific kinds of team sports. Like so much of it was very like logical. Uh, and that that also translated to why I really loved doing AP calculus in high school or like um, getting into uh, um, certain kinds of sciences when I was in high school. Um, I w- was never, ever considered myself a creative person. Like I didn't think I could draw anything that wasn't staring at something and just copying it. Like that was just like not how I was. Um but in graduate school, when I was doing, um, I was working on my PhD in human evolution, um, I went through a really tough mental health period. And it was the sort of thing that actually was my catalyst for leaving um, research in order to do science communication, because I felt like I could be more impactful. And I felt like I actually... Um, you know, like I, I loved teaching as a graduate student. I I was I, I was a really great teacher. Um, I helped people go from failing to you know A's in in um, in anatomy, like for the med students who were really like on the verge of failure out of their program. Like the professors would ask me to train or tutor people, and like it was something that I was really passionate about. Um, and I just found myself in a position during grad school where I was like, well, what's the point of what I'm doing when so much of what I'm in is like just making me feel awful, but also like starting to recognize that the systems that I was part of were just so toxic and like this meritocracy is totally a myth. And like, you know, there's all all of these things that were out of my control as a woman of color, as a first-gen immigrant, et cetera, like that like kind of dismantled my logical thinking of how you succeed in a career in STEM, in, in professional spaces, et cetera. Um, and I didn't have an outlet for it. And it wasn't until I had made my transition into a master's program in Edinburgh for science communication, where I found this entire community of folks who were doing um, academic comedy. Like it was, you know, it, it, it was a program that's been going on for a long time called Bright Club, um, started by this fantastic person, um, Steve Cross at, at UCL, University College London. And then, you know, it became a supported program throughout the country in the UK that like um, it was a part of a lot of universities. And so I found it. And like the very first night that my cohort and I wanted to hang out, like in my master's program, we decided to go to the show that they were having um, in a famous venue called the strand in, in Edinburgh. And one of the people who like went and performed for eight minutes was this woman who had just that week, defended her dissertation like her her phd and uh she spent eight minutes just being like i did it i passed and now i can just talk shit about (laughs) 
how ridiculous this entire program is. Like, why do you, you know, why do we put ourselves through this entire process? You know, why do we spend our lives doing, you know, like eight to 10 years of our lives researching something and like really feeling proud of it just to have this one last moment in front of a panel of men judging you for all the decisions you've made, uh, you know, both like personal and professional for the past years that you've had in order to for you to get your PhD, you know? Um, and I thought it was just so hilarious and cathartic, largely because it was saying things that like we were all clearly experiencing and feeling, but never felt like it was okay to say out loud. And that was it. That was just like the 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 simple the simple act of saying the truth out loud. And like the the catharsis that you get both as a performer and as a listener, that's what got me started. And that's when I was like, yeah, this is it. Like I just need to say this out loud because it would free me from my own self-doubt because it's not me. It's not just me. I mean, there are parts of it that's like I can, you know, certainly change. I need to learn about myself. I need to like unlearn certain things. Um, But a huge part of it too is like, yeah, there are systems that we're working in, unequal, you know, not okay, like terrible, like mental hygiene sort of workspaces that we say, like that we are taught from the moment that we get in that this is just how it is. And in order for you to succeed in the sciences, you have to be this way, you know? Um, and so it's it was freeing. And that's where I like really started to to play with comedy, to play with storytelling, um, to figure out how to unlock and better understand like the thought logic, like the process of thinking um, and reveal that process of thinking to everybody else. Like whether or not it's like how we, um, how we do the scientific process in general or like um, really recon- deconstructing why things in a museum were decided that they were worth being in a museum versus other things or being worth having a space in the history books versus like not having other kinds of narratives in history books. Um, so yeah, like, that's I, what really catalyzed it for me. And, 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 and that, that whole section on history books, you know, that, 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 that'll be a great, uh, great transition, but let me sort of bring it back to the mental, mental health issues in grad school, mm-hmm. uh, and the sort of toxic environment, because, you know, it, academic science, you know, this is a patriarchy, right? In many mm-hmm. ways, this is, uh, when we, when we eventually get into the whole Indiana Jones story, who's like the white male hero, I mean, wh- what are most PIs anyway? They're the white male heroes in the laboratory. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a patriarchal type of society, and you know, I I certainly agree that m- many of these grad programs don't have a uh, an outlet or a vehicle to help to help students who, who have anxiety or or, or who have like uh, you know mental health concerns. And it's really it's really especially as as people of color when we're entering these new spaces, and there's less and less people like you. You start to feel more and more isolated. Especially, I mean, I, I pretty much all the time in every in every lab meeting in every con <laughs> every conference mm. every paper. I'm always the only person who, you know, grew up with a single mother or or didn't have like a parent or or sibling or or whoever who did science before them. When I was reading like other uh, I had to be part of like the admissions process uh uh during my second year and read uh uh applications and 
And all of them spoke about, oh, one, I remember when I was 10 years old being in my mom's immunology laboratory. And from that point, I'm like, shit. You know, like <laughs> how how come like I cannot start my personal statements like that because mm-hmm. I don't even know if my mom knows what immunology is. Right. And 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 on top of that, like um, you know, this is certain uh, you know, strikes throughout my grad career, I I slowly realized that this is not an environment that's supportive for for scientists of color, and sometimes the white papers reflect that too, where yeah. um, yeah, where the, where the where the research itself is really racist, like. Um, I had some, some, uh, on some previous episodes, I had some friends on who were talking about, um, a paper that, um, uh, uh, that came out of, um, uh, university of Colorado. Uh, and it was talking about, it was trying to rationalize how, how Puerto Rico was, uh, how, uh, colonizing Puerto Rico w- was a good thing because the average height of Puerto Ricans is higher since they've been colonized as opposed to when they're not. And that's because the nutrition is really good. And it was extremely like a, a racist paper, uh, uh, trying to rationalize that it's okay to colonize other nations. Mm-hmm. And all the time you see this where scientists link, the d- disease to skin color or disease mm-hmm. to socioeconomic status when in reality it's should be linked to uh you know anxiety and depression and all these other things that are associated with uh f- feelings of isolation and police brutality and you know being watched by you know uh the cops at all times you can't even go for a walk so it, it all all these things like we're all made up of all these different identities but i also felt i often felt like um in grad school i was stripped of many of these identities right. and uh, yeah and that i was being sterilized in a way and it and it really felt like i was becoming a, a more and more narrow thinker ironically uh instead of broadening my knowledge which is what grad school is supposed to do um, and well, that even was- that, that like idea, right, that we're, or that historic version of graduate school as like the place for you to like grow your knowledge, that's not really true. Because I, like, mm-hmm. aside from like the toxic parts where people, like the ableism and um, the sexism, misogyny that a lot mm-hmm. of people experience, I have seen, I have like experienced it myself, but there are other parts of it too, where um, the the you you having a, an accent is detrimental, right? Unless it's a certain kind of like accent that is acceptable. You mm-hmm. you know happen like the the idea that you have to follow the the protocols and the research within silos, like within, um, you know, that's approved by your, your researcher, like I have, uh, like your, your PI, I have friends who have had to leave their graduate programs, because their PIs restricted them from being more um, interdisciplinary in their research, because it just didn't, you know, it didn't calculate with what they needed to do for the PI's career. And, And so, there are all these systems in which like yeah it's so arbitrary and it's so decided by just happenstance by the person who you happen to be working for yeah yeah and and let's think about the numbers too like if you decided to to stay in academic career i mean honestly does really like does really pay Mm -hmm. doesn't really pay that much anyway i mean you you sort of like finish grad school and then and then do your postdoc for two or three years i mean the salaries up on the nih website a five-year postdoc makes like 55k a year and you know by that time you're like you know maybe early to mid 30s and unless you get that golden ticket 
to this to this um to faculty and tenure position which is really rare uh you know you're going to be sort of stuck in this limbo of being in a constant academic space and being surrounded by all that for your entire career and i think um I, what I learned is in being in, in, in pharmaceutical settings and private sectors that science is actually a really, really broad. I mean, you can be anywhere from clinical trials or pre, from, from preclinical all the way to clinical trials and, 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 regula- and, reg- and regulatory FDA uh, specialists or translational specialists. And on top of that, like private sector science, you know, you have HR if you want to complain about somebody who's racist or sexist, you have um, mechanisms in place to sort of protect the identity of people who feel abused. Uh, while in academic uh, settings, you know, all the time, uh, PIs do abuse their students mentally, sometimes sexually yeah. as well, you yeah. know, uh, and they get away with it. They get away with it. And it's really unfortunate. <clears throat> and the way that that language, uh, the way that it gets normalized too, is so deeply embedded in the language that like, it it's hard to call it out because everyone's kind of agreed to it. Like the idea that I have memories of my first year in grad school where like more senior grad students will just laugh about how like, oh my gosh, remember how we used to just like have crying time, like cower in the corner and crying is normal. Or like, oh my gosh, remember that one time where like I had this mental health breakdown where I like was ready to just leave. I just started packing my bags on the night before an exam. And it's just like, that's not normal. Like it, it, took, not. Like, it, it took me five years and like finally going to a, you know, a mental health counselor to like say things out loud that I kept mm-hmm. experiencing. And then the person being like, that's not normal (laughs) for me to then start the process of like unlearning. Like it wasn't even like I had that, you know, I had the, the, the realization at that moment where I spoke to a counselor for the first time, it was like, no, I needed to, to go through the whole process of like realizing this space that I was in makes no sense. Right. Yeah. And you know that, and, and that, and that, is all sort of veiled by by popular media where it's where you know uh, uh the experiences of minorities and people of color are are minimized in comparison to you know the the white male savior in hollywood and in popular media and even in academic bi settings i mean the overarching th- a theme of you know white savior saviorism which is an issue in itself is is riddled with fragrant racism, you know, in, in popular, in, in popular media, the films often characterize their, their minority counterparts with, you know, childlike irresponsibility or, or caricature, caricatures of cultural or religious beliefs just for cheap laughs and cherry picking the myths and, 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 uh, uh, and cult and uh, cherry picking certain cultural tropes and, and savagery uh, images uh, for the sake of, furthering some some narrative in 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 tv and oftentimes the the sort of embodiment of this white male hero takes the form of the i guess the inspirational teacher you know uh uh uh, in movies where maybe like um that features a lower or middle class urban non-white class who struggle through through social order in general, but then a then a, a then a white male teacher comes along and and rescues them and transforms them and redeems them, or maybe this person is represented as the man of principle, a, you know, a savior who who uh, who who um, liberates who who, who liberates mm-hmm. uh, 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 
the the non-white slaves to to eventually become free and and these are the these are the tropes that are sort of perpetuated through through Hollywood and and even in Indiana Jones as you say uh, and we can sort of transition there where he's the guy that can do no wrong enter these uh, enter these foreign and exotic lands make a mess of things steal the crystal skull and then go home with the girl but in reality you know what it's doing it's it's making a joke of a colonizer of somebody who's who's coming up in your place and messing your stuff up and and stealing your your artifacts and then ending up ending up on Hollywood TV and I feel like uh, there are a lot of sort of parallels between who is Indiana Jones this this white male who comes through and and can do no wrong versus your academic PI who's this white male who comes through who could do no wrong uh, and they share a lot of, I feel like they share a lot of characteristics um, do you do you think that this is a fair comparison I. I mean, it's it's interesting because like the the movement to decolonize academia, especially history, um, the the field of history, but also especially the in archaeology, right, um, and paleoanthropology. Like, it's just so Eurocentric that it's hard mm. to get away. Like, it's hard to start really dismantling it. Um, and there are some amazing people who are making that happen, which is really exciting. But well, when you say Eurocentric, uh, mm-hmm. can you can you maybe define define that by Eurocentric? Do you mean like um like by by that by white archaeologists or 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 history of of or or the the discoveries are made in places that are associated with with Europe? Like, uh, can you sort of define what you mean mm-hmm. by Eurocentric? When when I'm saying Eurocentric, again, I'm not a scholar in this space anymore. I have left it for a mm-hmm. really long time. But in my experiences with it, th- when I'm talking about Eurocentrism in in archaeology and in hi- in like in museum worlds and and history, um, a huge part of that is not just like the way that money flows um, through the academia um, and ivory towers of um, you know, like a lot of that money comes from Europe or like Euro-like um, communities, Western communities, right? The U.S., um, Canada, etc. Like a lot of the money starts from there and flows out. And so the decision making um, in terms of like where you start um, looking for digs, where you, which whose stories you start to like really uplift in terms of historical narratives, etc. Mm-hmm. It comes from that lens and it doesn't necessarily, it's not equitable. It's not, it's not in the sense where they, you know, they spread the, the wealth and the money and opportunity um, by, uh, by building up capacity in other spaces, right? Like in, in, in third world, quote unquote, third world countries, developing nations, etc like where they they like really engender um the like local thinking and local knowledge um to be on equal levels as like european ways of thinking or Mm -hmm. european histories um or european ways of interpreting things like it's not that way it's kind of like okay here's a european researcher goes to you know um, some developing nation, like sure, hire some local people, but like all of the all of the clout is specifically going back to that European person and their mm-hmm. uh, their their origin, like institution, 
Mm-hmm. Um, if they're teaching locals, it's going to be through their very specific kind of um, knowledge, like ways of knowledge, instead of like really understanding that, you know, there's potential, um, there's, there's value in local ways of knowing of indigenous ways of knowing, um, you know, and like, there's a lot of people who are now trying to push against that and like are really succeeding and making headway in, in academic circles. But it kind of is this very strange academic economic system that doesn't, that, that essentially, um, it essentially like, uh, promotes erasure of indigenous ways of knowledge um it essentially promotes you know assimilation by brown black um folks indigenous folks aboriginal folks to being more uh like they're white people right like in order to succeed in academia and again even though there's a lot of people working to dismantle that now it's still like a really hard battle because you know, if you're that kind of person who's trying to decolonize a space, um, some people nowadays might think that, okay, that's worthwhile. But in practice, they might not necessarily seek out to make space for how to dismantle those white supremacist cultures in their research in order to make space for you as right. the one who's not white. Or like in order to like really figure out how to reform um, the economic system around the academic culture, right? And, and so when I talk about like, yeah, when I, th- I talk about sort of general Eurocentrism, that's what I'm talking about. Specifically in the world of archaeology where you're like, yeah, the all of the pictures, all of the research is first um, first authored or printed in like in Western languages by white folks, by um, you know, coded in white culture, um, but it's not necessarily the same as truly, uh, uh, truly helping like other communities thrive outside hmm. of that. And it, it that that phrase uh, the 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 economic system of of archaeology. I, I I don't think I've ever heard that before. And it's I, uh, I mean, it, I'm just like, you know, like that's that's kind yeah. of my description for it well, because that well, is what it is. It, it is, yeah, it is what it is. Because it's this is true, like where wherever the money flows from, the 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 sort of output is an imprint of the input, right? Mm-hmm. So the the money, if it's coming from these sort of uh large or Eurocentric institutions to the scientists who are who know how to apply for this money who know people who are the who who have this money who know what they want to hear when they apply these grants and create the language to apply these grants they get this money and then they use this money in a way that is expected of them from the institution that awarded it to them and then you have these people who are not from these lands ending up ending up and digging up all these artifacts and then um and then sort of uh rewriting the history, rationalizing this history in a way that they and their people can understand. And, you know, I, one of the sort of end results is, you know, when you go to these museums and you see, you know, these, these exotic items, uh, treasures taken, taken from these foreign lands and, and are treated like the other, here are some swords and weapons and jewelry from this other group from 2000 years ago, how exotic, how beautiful, but you know where did this item come from? You just stole it from there, from from wherever the homeland was. Like I, I remember once I went to like, 
I went to I, I, I went to the British Museum in London once, and like I was up in the section about America, right? Mm-hmm. And I was in I was in the New York section, and they had like some <laughs> they had like some history about uh you know, 9-11 and, and, and what that was about and what, what, are, what it's like being a New Yorker, right? And they literally had a picture of a Metro card on, the, on display inside the British Museum. And I'm like, uh, so what is normal life for, for me using this Metro card every single day is now put on display at the British Museum as this exotic thing when it's really just a normal way of life. And so then I, I really took a double back at every single item in that museum thinking, wait, every single thing here is probably just a normal object in someone's everyday life, but here it's treated as the other and treated as the different and, and put on display for people to 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 oogle to oogle at. <laughs> and you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, it, people uh, people are sort of um, created as an other not only from their from their sort of physical items, but also how they look as well. Like there, there's all kinds of racist uh, science that's happened throughout history and even today, where you know, just because you're shorter and have a smaller head. Uh, or or people who look a certain way are shorter and have a smaller head, they're inferior or they're, because their hips are wide and they sort of look like a certain way, they are a savage or the way they talk is this or the way they, because they eat this, they're that or, or, or because of the way they, they have their holidays, they're automatically savages. And I feel like um, a, a lot of really important world history was, was, was uh, erased by rationalizing what is perfectly normal human behavior as something that's not normal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, like the, the difference between uh, the individual and like the individual who's doing all of the research, whatever, you know, hard science, soft science, STEM background that person has versus like the idea or the, the, perfected idea of um of the scientific process or the ethnographic process um and a huge part of that is like you know we still live in this academic culture of idolization right like we 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 love and we eat up all those indiana joneses like we love and eat up that hero narrative Mm -hmm. um but it's not the same as the scientific process. Like when when we try and like celebrate the scientific process, it looks messy. It looks slow. It's like really tiny. It's not as fun to make a story out of. Um, and so people are less likely to like to relate to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting because, like, I mean, we're delving into the world of, like, history and narratives, especially tied to um, um, the sciences and, like, traditional scientists hate that. But also, like, they're part of that. Like, all of the discussions and papers are all about interpreting and, like, narrative and storytelling. And so, you know, like, yep. you can't get away from how you've been taught yourself how to build these narratives or who is helping you edit those narratives, right? Um, like how you decide to rationalize whether or not you include a certain group in a study, a certain gender in a study, or exclude those certain genders because they're not binary or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, um, and 
and yeah, and, and even now, like, it, it, so it, sort of back to the back to what you were saying about the economic system, and even here in the U.S., I, I forget the statistic, uh, but I, I saw I, I saw it in Nature once. Um, I guess I could I could put the reference in the show notes, but basically, uh, some X percent, some really small percent of of scientists in the U.S. Uh, obtain uh, attain, obtain some ratio of grants where the highest grant awardees always are getting the most grants all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and they sort of concentrate wealth in this way. They concentrate this nonprofit wealth at, at these universities into just a handful of scientists who have these millions and millions of dollars to do their research. And they're usually, you know, straight white males while other sort of minorities of uh, scientists of color oftentimes are, are 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 not winning these grants and and it it, it did come out of nature but basically you know uh, uh, black scientists are awarded grants at a much lower rate than than white scientists or 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 right. uh, uh, hispanic scientists are awarded grants at a much lower rate than white uh, rate than white scientists and these differences are 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 uh are are sort of uh, uh, ballooned in in this era of covid especially uh but um and this concentration of wealth in, in academic sciences also results in papers that are not representative of what science really should be looking like mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, so let me sort of, uh, in these last couple of minutes here, I want to ask uh, a sort of, um, I guess, a question that's kind of uh, something I never really asked before, which is, how do we sort of let's say uh, how, how do we explain to our friends or our rich friends or who who travel to these exotic places aka developing nations uh, and let them know uh, uh, how to ha- have more sort of vacation etiquette when they go to these <laughs> when they go to these foreign lands and they're taking selfies with drug tigers how do we uh, let them know that that's not the way to sort of um, to behave in a, in in a place where that's not, that, to be sort of aware of their privilege in these foreign lands. So maybe like, you know, uh, how to check your how to check your privilege when you're traveling. Like maybe asking for for permission before you take pictures with someone, or or in places where your gender is a privilege, in 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 spaces where women are not allowed to walk around by themselves, or even drive by themselves, or be aware how you consume food, I guess, or or what you consider cheap uh, in foreign lands. Maybe you travel to some rural village in Southeast Asia and you buy a, what is called a cheap meal for you, but maybe uh, it's a day worth of salary for someone who's actually from there or taking things from, from, from native populations or staying at resorts. In your opinion, how can we, um, can, can we decolonize STEM or decolonize um, these cultural experiences by having more etiquette when we travel abroad? And what are some Things we. What are some travel uh, etiquette, I guess, tips that we can give our friends to help de- deconstruct this culture of 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 white male uh, privilege abroad? That's um, I I feel like that's a really complex one because my, I mean my first instinct is to think about my own experiences and the times where my red flag has gone up, you know, my spidey senses tingled and I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, that feel, feels very gross. Um, and like my first step has always been, do I care enough about this person to put myself through this kind of level of stress <laughs> of like mm-hmm. convincing them otherwise? If I, whether, you know, like so much of 
so much of this work, especially if you are a, a you know an, an underrepresented person in a friend group, or if you are yeah the brown black person in the in the community or the immigrant that's like yeah definitely go to my country, but also try not to be so colonizer about it. I think it's. It, it's you expend so much and en- like we expend so much energy that there are times yeah. where I'm just like, I don't care enough about this person. I just know I don't like them anymore. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that is fine. You know what I mean? Like I, like I am not getting paid to do this. I, you know, I am still also preserving my own mental health and I need to set boundaries in that sense. And so unless it's someone that I care about, and we're having like a deep conversation where I am in a space mentally and emotionally to deeply listen to what they're saying and remember where they're coming from, right? Like that's different from like you're in a hostel, you're chatting to people, they're just like doing a gap year and they're, you know, having sex all throughout the place. Like mm-hmm. that's a completely different thing where you're just like, yeah, throw shade and throw it all, you know, let it all burn because like when else are you going to see them? Um, if it's like a group of friends that you're you're gonna have to like deal with again um like that's you know you have to like consider those factors and also consider where you are mentally and emotionally (laughs) like how how much work do you have to do to help them understand or do you have space to be like you know that thing that you were saying how you went to you went to this country that is poor, but like all you're saying is how kind people are, and like why isn't America that way? Like things like that, where it's like um kind of more akin to microaggressions, but like mm-hmm. signal something bigger because you know them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I am more likely to to like unpack and really listen because I know that they'll also like really consider what they're saying in a way that's like not you know where it doesn't feel like I'm attacking them and it's more about us building knowledge together and like building understanding because like people can get excited about stuff like that's not you know the issue the issue is like well how do you have a deeper conversation about what's actually going on right it's like for example if you if this happens a lot in con in like international conferences where you know it's being held in um in a in a poor gdp poor nation and people are like yeah i'll just throw like five bucks at a person like that's no big deal like that's you know a month's salary to them um and like that's totally fine but they don't think about the consequences of the rest of the space that they're in you know the way that like say white people would think about the consequences of messing with time travel (laughs) like like oh my god like you have this entire narrative about how if you happen to make out with your mother that's going to ruin the future of your timeline like that's you know like you don't give that sort of thought to um the economics of like that that you're disrupting when you're going into to place. So I feel like there's certain kinds of conversation that you just have to understand is like a longer conversation to have and that you yourself also need to be in a mentally better space an emotionally better space so that you don't like also like exhaust yourself, like where you feel like you're actually growing together as opposed to just like 
let's, you know, I should have just made this into a YouTube rant video. And then that would have, you know, like, then I could just like copy paste that and send that to somebody. (laughs) Those YouTube rant videos really do get a lot of views, don't they? They do. (laughs) They do. And it's like, you know, it's not bad for your buck. Like you, you put it out there. You don't care whether or not people watch them unless you really care about comments and no one should ever care about comments. Uh, like it's just not healthy disable um, comments as well. right <laughs> right so i mean don't disable it because like algorithms or whatever but like like <laughs> don't look at comments like there's science to show that it's just not good for you um but yeah i think it's that sort of thing where like if you're really going to take up that burden understand how much it's going to cost you yourself and your time and energy, you know, and and you know, it 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 really is exhausting to often explain what should be common information for how yeah. to deal with people who are not who are not like you. Uh, well, a baseline- I mean, okay, like so so you know, I'm not. We're talking about potential friends. I'm not even talking about relatives, right? Like, <laughs> I've got relatives who just want you know who are Filipino and immigrants, and like they get mad when people don't speak English, and I'm just like are you kidding me right now? (laughs) Also, I know I definitely don't have energy for this. Like this sucks. You know, Um, I'm not the person you who needs to disrupt your terrible, like travel etiquette, because we'll just spiral into a bad space. But But like, that's because that's my family. And I have to stick with them. And also we're dealing with, you know, the the immigrant slash Asian, like, internal hierarchy that like I can which is already compli- which is complicated in itself and right. you know can it's often hard to explain is it dependent on age is it dependent right. on is it a meritocracy or what is it but you right. know i i feel like this having this conver- having that conversation to dismantle all these sort of pre pre pre-existing conditions of of fault of, of a false sort of historical narrative requires an understanding of history and statistics how money travels and you know, oftentimes when you when you travel to these foreign lands as as a rich foreigner, you're creating this sort of dependency on tourism as well. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, the 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 I guess the, the 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 Sherpas around Mount Everest. You know, every year there's this big crowd of millionaires travel tra- trying to hike up Mount Everest, but what they don't realize is, you know, the Sherpas the Sherpas who live there live off the live off this tourism economy of these of these rich people from abroad coming through just to hike up a mountain uh, hike up the largest mountain in the world when they never climbed climbed the mountain in their life mm. and sherpas are putting their lives on the line to create you know pathways so that these people can get up the mountains and this is only maybe three months out of the year that they look forward to this tourism economy that in reality can cost their lives they can freeze to death lose their limbs uh all, all because of all because of these, these these people from somewhere else are coming through to take advantage of their of their mountain. Yeah, uh, I think like of- a lot of a lot of it too is like it's so easy for us to just give opinions and sort of mouth off <laughs> without mm-hmm. really appreciating the ecosystems that are so unique to all the things that we end up working in and working with, no matter what your background is. And like, I think one of the biggest things that people have people and I have been learning um, this year especially is that, you know, to truly be able to decolonize and to truly be able to um, be anti-racist and all the things that we end up doing and working in and living in, like that homework starts with you. Like it has to start internally because 
like you yourself have to understand the ways that you've been brought up the way like the ways that you sort of you know prioritize things why or why not like why do certain things come easier in terms of changing yourself to be better versus other things that like are a lot harder to change and like like you know truly understanding where you are as a person because how can you show up show up for other people if you can't show up for yourself right amen to that i mean it it requires a, a certain mindfulness a mindfulness of your not only your position in life but also your economic circumstances your family circumstances your 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 educational privileges and and so on and so forth to understand that you sort of started the race not only ahead of others financially uh having having a, a, a financial capital social capital uh, uh, other, other kinds of, I don't know, intellectual capital, whatever that put you in a position where you don't, didn't really have to work as hard as other people to get to where you are. But I, I think, the, uh, you know, this, this effort of, of, of decolonizing STEM and decolonizing basically everything is, you know, it's, it's going to be a hard journey because we're talking about deconstructing, you know, hundreds or, or hundreds, thousands of years of, of colonization and rewriting history and destroying of artifacts and, and, and 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 marginalizing people who otherwise who, who for, for no real reason i think uh is is going to take a very long time to do but it's worth every second so um uh, how would somebody get in touch with you if they want to continue this conversation uh what's your twitter what's your instagram how do people reach out to you uh you can find me on the social media at um my handle for the most part is at kyle marion at k-y-l-e M-A-R-I-A-N. Um, and lately I have been collaborating with a couple of science comedy friends, Shannon O'Dell and Kasha Patel, to sort of put together um, sort of monthly by monthly uh, science comedy trivia show. And so we've been really enjoying it because we've been able to sort of utilize um, some programs so that even audiences can also compete with people on the show. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I am doing stuff with Science Friday. And uh, we're hopefully giving people important science news and stories that, you know, they need, especially nowadays during the pandemic. And during this really about to be tough holiday season <laughs> yeah i mean we're really going to enter a whole new sector of getting people vaccinated and uh, and letting people and in, in sort of uh teaching not teaching but maybe being ambassadors for 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 science and 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 um and and how viruses work and how vaccines work and that's going to be a big sort of um uh publicity battle to gain the trust of the public that vaccines work and that's going to be a, a, a big journey as well but Thank you, Kyle, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, have a good day. Bye, Pardeep. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Deep Thoughts, Science and Social Justice. I really enjoy doing this podcast. So if you can, give it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with your colleagues. If you have any cool or interesting ideas for a future episode, be sure to let me know on the Instagram, Deep Thoughts Podcast. That's deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on Instagram. Or you can shoot me an email at deepthoughtsinterview at gmail.com. If you want to be on a future episode, you have a cool or interesting or unique story that you want to be put out there, I'd be happy to have you on. Let's look forward to a beautiful 2021. I know 2020 was rough, but there's nothing but bright skies ahead. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.